Lunapads believes that reusable menstrual products can offer a radical and transformative way to practice self-care and support body positivity. Their collection of modern cloth pads and leak-free undies are comfortable, sustainable, and effective. So you can stop getting ripped off every month by corporations who are trashing our planet. Get ready for a different kind of period experience and save 20% on your order at lunapads.com with the code PODSQUAD. That's P-O-D squad. Bitch Media is a nonprofit independent feminist media organization. Help make propaganda possible. Join hundreds of fellow listeners and become a podcast pollinator. Pollinators receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch, a brand new monthly roundup of all our podcast shows and music reviews straight to your inbox. Learn more at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. In April, hundreds of thousands of people gathered in over 600 cities around the world to show their support for one thing, science. The Global March for Science got started as a protest against Donald Trump's administration deleting the White House's information page on climate change, and also vowing to cut funding to environmental research being done by the Environmental Protection Agency. Around the world on March 22nd, the march was a rare public celebration of science. Protesters and researchers wrote their own super dorky chants defending science. Scientific facts are always in season. Stand up for truth. Stand up for reason. And of course, there were pro-science songs. Hello, science, my old friend. I've come to fight for you again. A missile launch in is now sinking. The golden age of critical thinking. That was a musician who goes by the name Latoya the Fairy. People turned out by the thousands to these marches because while the work of science is often hidden away in labs and obscure academic articles, many people deeply understand that science shapes society. And amid the celebrations of science, it's good to keep in mind that science itself is not neutral. The practice of science is far from objective. Scientists bring their own background and biases to their research. And throughout history and continuing today, faulty science has been used to justify racism and inequality like the eugenics movement. And you still see junk headlines today all the time about scientific studies supposedly proving fundamental gender binary differences. I'm always seeing news pop up like, why women love bad boys, according to science. (laughs) And of course, both politics and capitalism play a huge role in determining what scientific research gets funded and taken seriously. At its best, science helps us rethink the world and gain new understanding of our lives and the universe. But we have to see how our humanity and our economy plays a role in even the most objective research. On this week's episode, Radical Science, we have two interviews with awesome scientists discussing how science shapes society and how feminist scientists can help interrogate assumptions many people believe about race and gender. I talk with experimental physicist Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein about the article she wrote for a recent issue of Bitch Magazine, The Physics of Melanin. Then I call up self-proclaimed hood biologist Shea Keel mclean to talk about how biologists can help combat transphobia. Stay tuned. (laughs) 
Dr. Chandra Prescott-Weinstein is a theoretical astrophysicist. At the University of Washington, she studies dark matter. She's also super involved in creating more inclusive and feminist approaches to scientific research. Just this March, she received the 2017 LGBT Plus Physicists Acknowledgement of Excellence Award for, quote, years of dedicated effort in changing physics culture to be more inclusive and understanding toward all marginalized peoples. It literally doesn't get more badass than that. For the chaos issue of Bitch Magazine, which came out last fall, Dr. Prescott-Weinstein wrote about the chaotic construction of race in an article called The Physics of Melanin. The article looked at how melanin, the molecule that gives color to skin, has profoundly impacted human history, yet the properties of melanin itself have not been researched much. I called her up to talk about what the physics of melanin means and her thoughts on scientific research. I'm Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. I'm a theoretical physicist at the University of Washington who also does work on philosophy and history of science, particularly in relation to the participation of people who are traditionally marginalized outside of the mainstream scientific community. Okay, I want to talk to you about particle theory and your work as a physicist, but first I want to talk about earwax. <laughs> you start off your article, The Physics of Melanin, by talking about how if you were to categorize humanity based on a genetic trait, instead of skin color, we could be grouped by earwax. If you're like me, you might think that earwax is the same for everybody, but it's not. There are different types of earwax, which I never knew. And the texture and consistency of our earwax is just as determined by genetics as our skin color. Right. So I should actually say that this is an example that came from my husband at one point. Um, I forget how we got started, but we were talking about race and constructions of race. And I just want to be really clear that I think sometimes people say like, oh, race isn't real. It's just a social construction. But it's obviously like a very real social construction. Um, and it has physiological components to it. It now has an element of historicity to it. I identify strongly as black. I don't think that that is just a construction in my mind. Um, but the earwax example, I think it's really salient because it just shows that we could have organized ourselves differently, but um, that some people have dry earwax and some of us have wet earwax. And actually, you know, having one or the other comes with different advantages and disadvantages in terms of it, for example, getting stuck in your ear canal, it turns out. Um, and that's just not what happened, maybe partly because it's harder to see each other's earwax and we're not poking around in each other's ears all the time. <laughs> I love this because it shows like the absurdity of dividing and categorizing people based on arbitrary genetic traits. You know, the true absurdity is what we did with the organization on, on some level. Would we be so bothered by it if it didn't involve racism? Maybe not. Would it have happened without racism? I don't know. I mean, I actually think that those are all really interesting, um, you know, sort of futurist slash historical questions. But I think the, the important thing is that the organization happened and then it happened with the specific purpose of keeping people down and enslaving people and stealing people's land. And, and that's really where it gets absurd is that people then invented some really fantastical um, pseudoscientific ideas to justify what was really just about taking people's stuff. Let's talk a little bit about your story. Like, when did you get interested in physics? When I was 10, 
um, my my fifth grade teachers tried an experiment where they decided to put um, the students in the different fifth grade classes into electives. And so I decided to go into the science elective and immediately was really, really drawn in by the discussions of there were two things I was excited about, photosynthesis and then also um, how airplanes work and in particular the difference in pressure above and below the wing and how that leads to planes taking off. And at that point, I had already shown for years a pretty strong interest in math. And I just, I was like that nerd who did times tables for fun during my after school program. I just sat and wrote them out. So my mom noticed that I was really excited by my science class, and she was really interested in seeing this new documentary by Errol Morris called A Brief History of Time, which is about Stephen Hawking. It has the same name as his famous book. And so my mom took me to see the documentary, and halfway through the documentary, they were talking about black holes and how Einstein had never figured out um, what happened at the singularity or how to get rid of the singularity. And I had no idea that you could you could think about these sorts of things as a career. And I was just like, whoa, there are things that Einstein didn't figure out and I can get paid to worry about them. And um, I was sold. And so that's actually how I got interested in being a theoretical physicist. I walked out of the theater going, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, and asking my mom for a copy of the book, which my uncle bought me for my 11th birthday. So over the years, um, you know, I, I made a plan. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get a PhD. I actually sent an email to Stephen Hawking asking how to become a theoretical physicist. And one of his graduate students replied and explained to me that you had to get a PhD. And then afterwards, you became a professor in theory. I haven't I haven't worked out that part yet. That's so awesome. You sent an email to Stephen Hawking as like an 11 year old. I love that. I think like a really key piece of that was not so much that, you know, I sent him my transcripts and they were like, oh, this child is a genius, we must respond to her, but much more that I just felt like I was entitled to information and I asked for it. And I actually think that that can be a really key piece of success for scientists is just feeling like you even have a right to ask the question. Okay, so let's loop back to talking about um, that racist pseudoscience you mentioned before. Here's what I want to talk about is so science is a pursuit of objective truths and like the rules of the universe that are constant and unchanging. But as you so clearly point out, science itself isn't objective because it's always filtered through human experience. Scientists bring their own biases to their work. And yeah, what, what gets studied, what questions get asked, what evidence gets looked at, and what is taken for granted as obvious are all affected by that human filter, by our own subjectivity. And that's led over time to science being used to support a lot of false ideas like that you can tell how smart someone is based on their skin color or the shape of their head. I think that this is something that I feel really strongly about that I'm, you know, and, and actually because I'm a scientist, I feel like my responsibility is always to be thinking about um, what is, you know, about me and what is not about me. And I think that my role as a scientist is to kind of separate those things out. So I understand that, for example, the dark matter particle that I spend a lot of my time on, the axion, 
I work on that dark matter particle really for reasons that have nothing to do with, um, oh, the universe says that you should be working on that particle. That's not really how it works. It has to do with my preferences, kind of my professional trajectory, the questions that I ended up finding interesting. And so I really do think that what science gets worked on and the kinds of science, scientific questions that we ask depend on our perspective, our standpoint, what we've been exposed to, who we've been talking to. There are all of these human elements that come into the, the process of doing science. And I think that that raises a lot of questions, even, for example, when we're talking about the relationship between science and progress. Um, that what constitutes progress in your view really depends on your standpoint. It really depends on whether, you know, um, you think that you can make a profit off of global warming versus whether you think global warming is going to ruin where you live as to whether you think the technologies that have globally warmed the planet are progress as, as I think like a really accessible example. What, what constitutes objectivity is heavily influenced by our sense of culture and by the cultural context in which we exist. Like, I think it's really fascinating, for example, that cosmologists and people who work on questions in fundamental physics, um, like particle theory, are often thinking about questions relating to grand unified theories, what is the bigger, what is the thing that sews the universe together, and that often those people are simultaneously having conversations about, for example, God. Like Stephen Hawking, I think, is a really good example of a cosmologist slash particle theorist who has been known to talk about whether God exists on one or on more than one occasion and whether, you know, science can determine that God exists. And I really think that this happens in a, a Judeo-Christian context where we have this vision of the universe where there is a single unifying force and then everything comes down from that. It's actually, in a lot of ways, that visualization of the universe being organized in that way um, mirrors the um, Judeo-Christian picture. So I don't think that that's a coincidence. I don't necessarily, obviously I work in that area, so I don't necessarily think it's a wrong perspective, but I think it calls into question when we talk about objectivity. Um, I think that objectivity is almost unattainable. The piece you wrote for Bitch is about the physics of melanin, so let's start with the basics. What is melanin? I know that melanin is something that makes our skin the color that it is, but can you explain what melanin is exactly in terms anybody could understand? The melanin that is most familiar to humans is the kind of, is, is a molecule basically that gives color to our skin and to our hair. So our eyebrows and, um, you know, our eyelashes and the hair that grows out of our head and the hair that grows out of other places. And so that's actually, there are multiple types of melanin. Um, there's another type of melanin called neuromelanin that um, we find in the neural system. And actually, it's still not understood what neuromelanin does. So, you know, for any young people who might be listening to this, I hope you'll think about figuring that out because I'm actually really deeply curious about it now. So melanin, yeah, the molecule that's particularly significant in both human history and the intimate details of our lives today, since we live in a white supremacist society, we're having less melanin in your skin, being lighter and whiter, gives you access to certain privileges. Of course, though, the construction of race is about more than just how much melanin you have. And you write in your article that, I like this quote, I'm just going to read it aloud. 
Black identity is a sociogeographic construct with a real but tenuous connection to science. Can you break that down a bit? What is the real but tenuous connection to science? I think that I really wanted, you know, to make room for two different and important analyses that should work in tandem with each other, but often are um, divorced from one another in discourse. One is that, you know, we understand that blackness as an identity or as a racial construct um, is, is fairly recent. In, this, in the greater scheme of human history, and that it's very intimately tied to um, the triangular slave trade the, and, and um, uh, chattel slavery in particular in um, North America and in South America and Central America. Um, but at the same time, that black is an identity that many of us um, feel invested in in the black community. So it's not just about the white gaze, but it's also now about the black gaze and how do blacks relate to each other and how do we see ourselves in relation to one another and in relation to white people and to other people who are not black. And so... I, I, I wanted to highlight that there is this element of human construction to it and that in a lot of ways that's very unscientific because a lot of the sort of storytelling that went on in, in that context was, oh, having lots of melanin in your skin means that your brain is inferior and that all of these other things about you are inferior. And that's clearly um, garbage can pseudoscience. But at the same time, um, there is this real element of it that those of us who are part of the African di diaspora have, um, to varying degrees, often very strong relationships with un one another because of this this shared um, identity that is related to a certain type of melanin content and a certain geographic origin, but is not solely about how much melanin you have in your skin and, um, you know, how recently your ancestors were on the African continent. It's complicated. Yeah, it is. Going back to the slave trade, you write in the article that a curious feature of Enlightenment era Europe, a time that was marked by you know, both huge scientific interest and exploration, as well as colonial expansion and genocide. A curious feature of this time was the obsession, not just with conquering everything, but also with justifying that abominable behavior. You say, quote, what had previously been the sole purview of religion increasingly became the domain of science. That really stuck with me. And I'm hoping, can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, so I actually think that this is an important point because I think, you know, especially in the context of the discourse about the science march and, um, you know, uh, threats to science real and perceived um, from, let's say, the religious right in the United States, that people often forget that it's a fairly recent phenomenon to separate religion from science and that actually for a long time those went hand in hand and you know i think that somebody might respond to that by saying well you know galileo was harassed by the church because he didn't do what the church wanted but it's also the case that a lot of the people that we look to as our heroes in physics were deeply Christian, deeply religious people, and that a lot of the people that we should be looking to as heroes in physics as well were, um, were is, 
very Muslim um, scholars. And so this the separation of religion from science is a fairly recent phenomenon. And I think that we do have to be careful about um, backdating that separation. So I think, in fact, what we are looking at is people using religion to justify basically this capital capitalist impulse to enslave people, steal land, um, and to justify racism. And that science often followed from that because it was convenient for science to work in tandem with religion and with the economic impetus for this kind of behavior. But I, I don't think that we can really separate those two things. I think eugenics was very much related to um, people's sensibilities about um, religious organization and the hierarchy of where people were in religious organization. And I think we can see this, for example, in the, in the tradition of the Mormons that, um, you know, black people were basically like the devil's children, that there is a eugenicist component to that logic. One big thing you mentioned in the article is that there's not as much research that's been done about melanin. Even though it's had a huge impact on human life, melanin itself hasn't been the center of a lot of scientific research. So in your reading about melanin, what have you found that's interesting about the molecule itself that you want to know more about? I mean, I think it was sort of interesting writing this article, right? Because as a particle physicist, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about material science. And this is really kind of a material science question. So I should start by saying that in a lot of ways, just as much as, you know, bitch listeners and readers, I'm kind of an outsider to this conversation about the active research part. But part of what was interesting to me is that it's a it's a disordered conductor. And so it, it's a very simple example of the types of materials um, the more complicated material, superconductors, which can act as conductors and insulators, depending on how you tune the, the temperature. And this is an active field of research because it will possibly superconductors will allow us to deliver energy much more efficiently without loss along the way between, say, the source of the power and your household um, or your office or wherever. And it was sort of interesting going back and doing research while I was working on the article and realizing that even in review articles and scientific publications from the last 10 years, that people were really using really antiquated racist terminology in conversations about race and skin and um uh, phenotypes that I read the word mongoloid in an article that was, I think, from 2007 and was completely stunned that this was still acceptable terminology. <laughs> you point out in that piece that um, it's just in recent years that scientists have started studying melanin, and that's being driven by research into skin cancer, which mostly affects people without much melanin in their skin with white people. So why hasn't melanin been studied much over the years? I know that the answer to this will be racism, of course, in some regards, but like, in what way does that play out? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is sort of one of the ridiculous realities of our patriarchal, white supremacist, heterosexist society, that really basic, like really, really simple, basic, obvious, easy questions, like, 
um, you know, does this medication affect people with a different hormonal profile differently? And so, you know, to put that in, in terms that are maybe more familiar, that often medical studies only use male, only use people who um, are identified as cis men as their um, study subjects. And for that reason, um, people who um, have a different hormonal profile than the average cis man, we don't know how medications affect them in the same way. I think I think it's a very similar example that literally because the researchers have traditionally been cis men, that we know about the things that interest white cis men for the most part. And we don't know very much about the things that might interest a different set of people who are facing a different set of psychosocial and physical circumstances. So I'm just curious, what do you want to learn about melanin? If you could design a study into melanin, what would you look at? You know, I think that as someone who's an outsider to material science, I probably won't be designing any experiments using melanin. But I think the thing that stood out to me the most, and I think I, I talk about this in the in the article, is how would it change the conversation about why anyone should, you know, care about physics if we were talking to people about the physics of their skin and particularly talking to them about the physics of why their skin is the color that it is and why some people's skin is the color that it is. And, you know, I think in like the more fantastical version of this, it, it, we talk to children about this and it becomes evident to children at a very young age that skin color has nothing to do with how your brain works and, you know, um, and that there's no programming in your skin color that makes you like rap music or not like rap music or speak a particular English dialect or speak a different English dialect, that kind of thing. So I think that one one way of thinking about this is how do we talk to the public about science and the relevance of science to them? That was Dr. Chandra Prescott-Weinstein, who's currently doing research at the University of Washington, Seattle on dark matter. You can follow her on Twitter. Her name is at I-B-J-I-Y-O-N-G-I or at medium.com at Chanda, C-H-A-N-D-A. The music that we're hearing right now is from A Brief History of Time, the movie that started Chanda on her journey to physics. It's composed by Philip Glass. You can help make propaganda possible. Become a podcast pollinator. Pollinators receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine, and other great benefits. Become a pollinator today at bitchmedia.org pollinators. Lunapads believes that reusable menstrual products can offer a radical and transformative way to practice self-care and support body positivity. Their collection of modern cloth pads and leak-free undies are comfortable, sustainable, and effective. So you can stop getting ripped off every month by corporations who are trashing our planet. Get ready for a different kind of period experience and save 20% on your order at lunapads.com with the code PODSQUAD. That's P-O-D squad.
Today on Popaganda, we're talking about radical science, using science to challenge assumptions around race and gender. So here's an interesting question. How does inequality impact our bodies? Does oppression leave a mark on our skeleton? That's one of the issues that Shea Akil McLean is studying. Shea Akil is a PhD student who looks at human inequality from sociological and biological perspectives. He founded Decolonize All the Science, a website about the political context around science and technology. He's also a trans man who gave himself the moniker Hood Biologist on Twitter, where he keeps up a constant flow of commentary and gifs about science and society. He's a smart and interesting researcher, so I called him up to talk about his work examining inequality. Hey, my name is Shea Akil McLean. I am a now third year PhD student in sociology at University of Illinois at Banner-Champaign. My research work is in the fields of biological anthropology and sociology. And what I pretty much do for work now is as a teaching assistant. So. And that's what I want to talk about first. I want to talk about bones and skeletons because I'm excited about this. So in your scientific work, you research how systemic inequality impacts human health. And as part of that, you look at the impact inequality has on the human skeleton. So can you tell me a little bit about specific examples that you've studied? Like how does social, economic, and political oppression actually change our bodies? Well, a lot of the work that I have done in the past with regards to human skeletal remains has been looking at the um, different systems that leave particular kind of markers. So when it comes to inequality, certain people get certain access to particular resources. We can find this in skeletal remains of um, historical populations by just paying close attention to what kind of calculus may have been on teeth, left on teeth to look at what people were eating, the state that the teeth could be in, the state the skeletal remains are in, who was, which like which quote unquote group or what set of human remains had more quote unquote consequences of violence. So there's more damage to like long, long bone length. There's a number of different ways to measure it. And like, but in a lot of ways, what we're looking for are different ways to piece together the story of what happened in the society. A lot of what I have done is trying to connect comparison between historical populations with more um, modern contemporary populations. So one project that I was working on previously was trying to pay close attention to the impact of high incidences of poverty and um, living in a food desert on people of African descent in Buffalo, New York. Well, I, the way that I went about doing it was paying close attention to dental disease, because dental disease is one of the greatest indicators that we have of inequality and quality of life and well-being. Because in a lot of cases, we usually don't think of dental health as being something directly correlated with general health, but it actually is. The more cavities, for example, that you have in your mouth, the higher chance you have of having coronary heart failure. And then would you compare the dental records of modern day people in Buffalo, New York to like a historical group's rate of dental records? Yep. How does that work? Like that was some of the work that I was attempt that I wanted to eventually do. We're looking at the state of dental health of poor um, black people in Buffalo in comparison to the state of dental health in some like historical populations that we know that we have we already have in collection at different universities. But it's really nice to get a comparison, for example, for people of African descent who lived pre-civil rights and then a comparison, for example, to post-civil rights. That was some of the work that I was attempting to do like with regards to um, skeletal remains, specifically looking at dental remains. That's so interesting, I <laughs> think. 
Yeah, besides that, I've done some stuff on work, like quality of work, like looking at how people were, um, how populations that we know were overworked, the impact that that work may have had on different joints, like uh, the knee joint and elbow joint, as looking at those as particular indicators of the specific kinds of work that they have done. The things that I was specifically looking for in those cases were like mainly I was looking for particular conditions like I was looking for osteoporosis. I was looking for um, really, really overgrown, like um, overgrown bony um, bony components on the joints to look to see if there were any larger problems. If they were like overworked, do you see like where a tendon may have grown a little bit stronger? And muscle may have grown and attached a little bit stronger to the bones, like looking for different kinds of formations. I think it's so interesting because those, it's a way of trying to sort of tell the story of people who are gone and fill in a historical record that's right now missing. Like the voices of people who are poor and overworked are so often missing from our historical record. We can't tell a lot about their lives. So to do this kind of forensic science is trying to build a picture of what their lives are like. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it's part of trying to tell that story. And we can only do so much because we have particular types of elements of this story that may have been left over. Um, but it's something that we can use to kind of like fill in the picture based on what we do have from historical documentation. So we can put these pieces together to try to see exactly some of the things that people were experiencing. And but also looking at the impact of the way that you treat, we treated people over time, like how that it impacts the quality of their life and then what it leaves over. It's a, it's kind of a, it's a larger reflection for not just what happened to them, but also like a larger reflection to think about what a society does, like the dynamics of a society, the way we treat one another. And then looking at, to some extent, its consequences, but from a step back from what has already happened. That's so interesting. So I know you're working on your master's thesis right now and it focuses on the connection between like public health and the systemic impacts of, of racism. Can you tell me what you're looking at specifically? Yeah, so for um, my master's project and I'm like working on now getting it ready for a publication, one of the things that I looked at is all the different ways that anthropological and sociological, the mainstream critiques of racism continue to fail. So even though we have these conversations about racism, social construct is not biological. For some odd reason, we still have, in many senses, eugenic research or extremely racist and biological determinist research is constantly being reinscribed in a number of different ways, in a number of different fields, in the academic sector, as well as in the public sector. So what I tried to do in my project was look at, well, what, what can we do to introduce a historically accurate framework that we ground what we understand of, of race as in? Because in a lot of times people make the mistake of thinking that race is just purely the physiological characteristics that define a particular group that come to have a, part, a specific social meaning among part, different people. But that's not the case. Race as a particular phenomena didn't rise outside of racism. So one of the things that I was looking at is how race and racism, as well as ethnicity, slowly became separated over, US, over time in, the US, in, in U.S. history. Everything has a history, right? Everything has a dynamic. It interacts with other things. So I try to pay close attention to the way that racism as a particular set of ideas, as a particular way that we so, system we socialize people into and teach them how 
to understand themselves and others through how that is imp impacting how we move across space, who we're likely to pick as neighbors, who we are likely to choose to quote unquote procreate with, and then how we give meaning to these interactions. And then looking at, wow, well, that actually is what's impacting and showcasing a particular structure, like population structure. We are giving a priori significance to these categories. They don't, it's not simply that the category itself exists as a genetic marker or an allele and then bounces its meaning back to us. What are, what are some examples of the kind of biological determinist research that seems like it's, it's rooted at some point in sort of a, a eugenic approach to science that you've seen in recent history that make you be like, we're still doing this or this is still getting funded? Yeah, to many, an example would be Nicholas Wade's book, A Troublesome Inheritance, where he, um, he tries to use different advances in genomics and comparative human biology to um, basically justify um, really racist hereditarian notions, the idea that race is a biological phenomena and that is particularly inherited, and then that's how it's passed on in human society. So his, his work is an example. And his work kind of connects back to also to somebody who we've heard a little bit more about more recently, Charles Murray, for example, who is one of the authors for Bell Curve. Like that, those kinds of research that try to argue that, oh, particular racial groups have pre, like they are predisposed to particular forms of violence and so like a behavior that we see as a social ill or they're predisposed to particular diseases to make them inferior and they're, they're weaker than other groups. Those are the kind, of, the kind of logics that play into eugenic concepts. So I wanna change gears a little bit and talk about, like there's also this kind of uh, using science to back up assumptions that we already have or back up um, sort of a biological determinism approach to the world. You see it a lot around gender as well, around science that's mm -hmm that then it winds up at least in the headlines as like, uh, you know, why are, why are men and women so different? Science has the answer. There's this, this, and this, it's in our genes. Um, and you've written a lot on, on Twitter and another writing about uh, biology and transgender identity. I'm curious about how like your research or your just extensive reading around biology and sociology connect with pushing back against the idea of gender as a binary. What, what does that kind of science, what, what kind of science stands out to you in that field recently that, that that's resonated with you about um, redefining gender. Well, and that's, that's the thing though, in a lot of ways, we're not really redefining gender. We're just, we're just confronting what gender actually is and paying close attention to its history. Like if there comes to, if there are any really, really significant texts that I would say like are central to that kind of work or any fields that are central to that work is going to be history and sociology more than anything else. And then what biology can provide is a very useful framework to remind people also along with sociology and history that gender is not sex. Genitalia is not gender. Genitalia is only one framework, one part of sex criteria. Like genitalia doesn't solely define your biological sex. There are other criteria, criteria that can be used to define biological sex. Um, when it comes to the, the binary, um, gender binary specifically, the gender binary is particularly one component of Euro-Western patriarchy. It's a specific model that comes from like a, Europeans. Not every people had a concept of a gender binary. For example, um, 
the work of Oyewumi, um, yeah, Oyewumi, Oyewumi, who I believe is a sociologist and historian, um, her book, The Invention of Women, that's one of the things that she looked at is how this concept of woman did not come until Euro-Western colonizers did. So there are all of these people around the world who were able to exist for a very long time with all of these different types of genders, all the different kinds of interactions. These things were outside of binaries. These different types of sexualities, they were not binaries. What we know today is a consequence of colonial, um, colonialism. I just want to talk a little bit about the, how the, his, the history of using science to justify those beliefs and ideas about gender around having sort of a, a society that's built around a gender binary and finding science or using science to support that. Can you talk a little bit to the history of um, how science has been used in the past to support a gender binary and, and dismiss the existence of transgender and intersex people? So generally when we think about sexuality and we think about biological constructs, we can go to the framing of homosexuality in U.S. history. So homosexuality as a phenomena was created first before heterosexuality. And it was, it was framed as a consequence of gender confusion and sexual deviance in medical scientific discourse. Heterosexuality is just a, is being straight. The notion of straightness is actually a byproduct of scientific and medical literature in the 1890s. And it framed the concept of the homosexual. So sexuality ended up becoming a thing and part of a personal identity in the early 20th century. And um, a lot of the legal frameworks were argued by sexologists and then used in courts. So very similar, you see a pattern, because this is sim there's a similar pattern that was utilized with regards to race. Anatomists and physicians were doing specific kind of racist work, and then those were utilized to justify different decisions made in courts in the United States. Um, for example, Dorothy Roberts talks about this in Fatal Invention. She refers to racial prerequisite cases that were utilized. They used the work of loads of different scientists, racist scientists, in order to justify different decisions they made in court, which end up then going to frame different legislative decisions. So we see this, a, a similar thing that, that happens, right? So a particular exp human experience is framed as a disease or an aberration from the ideal type. And then that framing of the aberration or disease or pathologization, like turning people and their existence into a pathology, is then utilized in order to design a law in order to say that this form of behavior is not allowed and these people can be corrected because they have a problem. That's Shay Akil McLean. You can follow him on Twitter at hood underscore biologist and read his writing at decolonizeallthescience.com. The message that Shay Akil and Chandra share is really the heart of science itself, that we need to think critically. In looking at scientific research, we have to keep in mind the world's biggest variable, ourselves. How do our feelings, our backgrounds, our experiences shape how we see the world? What we see as inherently true? And how willing are we to overlook solid evidence to the contrary? Approaching the world with a scientist's mind means approaching both society and ourselves critically and not being afraid to ask questions, even the ones that seem like the most simple. 
Huge thanks to Shea Akil McLean and Dr. Chandra Prescott-Weinstein for talking with me for this episode, that they took time out of their busy schedules uh, to talk with us. It's so great. Chanda's original article is called The Physics of Melanin and can be found at bitchmedia.org or in our Chaos print issue. This show is produced for Bitch Media by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures. Every episode of Propaganda is transcribed by Cheryl Green at Storyminders. We're proud to make propaganda available to people who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find full transcripts of every show at bitchmedia.org under the podcasts tab. The song about Henrietta Levitt, that Henrietta Levitt <laughs> that you heard at the beginning of the show, is by the band The Corner Laughers. Look them up. They have a whole album uh, that's pretty nerdy. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. If you have thoughts or feelings or feedback on the show, please feel encouraged to send me an email, sarah with an h at bword.org. I read every email and I'm always excited to hear your thoughts, whether they're good or bad or both. Propaganda is produced by Bitch Media. You can help make propaganda possible. Become a podcast pollinator. Pollinators receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine, and other great benefits. Become a pollinator today at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. Thanks for listening.